one of the reasons that I personally stopped saying, you know, you could have gone to any church, but you're here with us. One of the reasons why I stopped saying that, because after every time I said that phrase, I always wanted to go H to the Izzo, V to the Vizay, for Shizzle. Some of y'all understand. If you don't, don't take it personal. Every joke isn't meant for you to get. Also, just a, just a quick note on the worship team tryouts. Make sure it's confirmed beyond your shower <laughs> that you can sing. I mean, I wouldn't try out personally. Please don't be that person that just says, well, I'm gifted to sing. Says who? Like, we have to confirm that some singing is not meant to be up here. So please make sure we don't want it, no problems. We want everyone to use their gifts, but some gifts should be used in the comfort of your own home. So we want people who, I mean, you come out. But if I'm here, I'm Randy from American Idol. It's a no for me, dog. It's a no for me, so. And I have a little bit of sway on decisions around here, so. All right, let's open our Bibles or open your Bible app. We're going to start off in Job chapter 1 this morning. Job chapter 1. We talk about this book a lot. We mention the story a lot. Job is a story that everyone talks about, but we usually just paraphrase and just kind of describe it. But this morning, I want to read selections from Job that will help us process what we're going to read in Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1 in Job, I'm reading from the CSB translation, and I quote. I'm going to read it fast because it's a lot of verses. Not micro machines fast, but just a little faster than I normally would read. And I quote, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes, and they would send an invitation to their three sisters and eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan asked him. And walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one on earth is like him. A man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But, if you, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, it's very few times in the Bible that Satan actually talks. So this has nothing to do with the message, but I just want you to take a mental note of Satan's anthropology. This is his understanding of humanity. 
They trust you when you bless them. This is Satan's anthropology. He's been around since the beginning. They trust you when you bless them. You don't bless them, they won't trust you. This is his view of humanity. Sadly, we sometimes confirm it. So here's what God says. Very well, verse 12. The Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking, one in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, the, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants had dev and devoured them. And I alone have escaped to tell you that messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported. The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking. So you got three people speaking, <laughs> saying, bad Worse, worstest, worser, worstest. Verse 19, suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. So Job just found out his children are dead. Then Job stood up, tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Chapter 2. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give up everything. Listen to his anthropology. This is his view of us. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. That's his view of us. There are people in this room that, by the grace of God, are proving Satan wrong. Because there are men and women in this room who have felt physical affliction, and they're in this room. They still trust the Lord. But this is his view of humanity. If you, if you protect them, they'll, they'll, they'll praise you. If you allow harm to come in their life, they won't. Again, so God responds, verse 5. Verse 6, very well, the Lord said to Satan, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet onto the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak of a, as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we not accept only, should we accept only good from God and not adversity? I love the ESV rendering. It says, and not evil. Throughout, throughout all this, Job did not send in what he said. Now, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamite, Namathite, heard, all, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came to his home from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. 
They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and seven nights, but no one spoke a word because they saw his suffering was very intense. The book goes on to list a conversation, perspective from each of these friends who were trying to help Job understand why this may be happening to him. And each of them were wrong in their perspective. And then eventually God decides to weigh in way later on. The book is a long book. And at chapter 38, God decides to enter in and answer and explain the situation. And listen to how God explains, how he responds to allowing everything that he gave Job to be taken away. Here's what God says in response. In talking to Job, chapter 38. Beginning in verse 4, here's what he says to Job. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundation? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries and put, it, put its bars and, and doors in place, when I declared you may come this far but no further, your proud waves stop here? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place? So it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it. The earth is changed as clay is by a seal. Its hills stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and the arm raised in violence is broken. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you... Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. This would go on for another two chapters until Job would respond in verse 40 at just the, the onslaught of questions that God is asking. Job would respond in verse 40, chapter 40, verse 3, and it would say this. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. And God continued to ask Job more questions for the rest of the chapter and all of chapter one. And then in chapter 42, Job responds with this, beginning in verse one. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard the reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. 
And then after that, the scripture tells us that God restored everything that he took from Job back. He had more children, more cattle, and it was more than what he had taken in the first place. This is a story that's used often, and sometimes people use this story as if to feel like they're a contemporary Job. I don't know anyone who's experienced this type of suffering. I've never met anyone. But we often identify ourselves with Job in the suffering. But there comes a time where we have to identify ourselves as Job with the questions. We can't always identify what we're going through and think, oh, this. Sometimes we have to say, okay, let me take my concerns and think about who God is. If you know the narrative, Job never got an answer to the question of why God allowed all of it to happen. What he got from God is, do you know who I am? Do you understand the vast difference between you and I? Do you realize that what I do, I do for a purpose is greater? Can you do anything that I can do? Can you control any of the elements that I control? Do you know the names of the stars? Not the ones that NASA gives. Sure, that's the Pleiades and that's the Orion. No, no, no. What is the name God gave these stars? God is asking these series of questions not to be rude, but to adjust a rudimentary perspective. The reason why I wanted us to read this this morning is because in Romans 19, we are about to get a Cliff Notes version of what Job got in the whole book. In the four verses we're going to read today, or five, mind you, there's going to be a Cliff Notes version. In other words, God at this point in the passage of Romans 9 is going to now ask questions via Paul in a similar fashion. It's much more succinct. And the context isn't identical because Job was responding and God was responding to Job in his suffering. But now God is going to do the same thing as it relates to salvation. We have questions about the morality of mercy and that people will go to hell. And then it appears as if from the scriptures that God is allowing that to take place. So I wanted us to look at Job first. So that when we look at Romans 9, which we're about to do now, we have, at least in our minds, a context. This is not unfamiliar for God to address his children in this way. Not because he's rude or we don't require someone, but because there are things that we can't understand. If you notice, what God asked Job was questions about just the atmosphere. What makes the ocean only come but so far? Do you know why the sun, is it really just it happens on its own? It's like we can't understand the things that we've come to appreciate and accept as normalities. How can we understand things that are difficult? It's not rude of God to do this. He's adjusting a rudimentary an understanding that lacks understanding. Beginning in Romans 9 now, we will see the Cliff Notes version of what Job is. Beginning in verse 19, he says this. You will say to me, therefore, 
Now, remember, on the heels of this, he said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. This is where he's at. So we're at in the argument of Romans 9. Paul talks about the Jews not being saved, and he's in anguish over that. He talks about that, that God, before Jacob and Esau were born, did anything good or bad for the purposes so that election will stand, that God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So this is their processing all of this reality. And then God says to this, to them this, you will then say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Here's his response. Seven questions. On the contrary, who are you a human being to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us? the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God asked a series of seven questions, and already the tension is there. We don't like this. What's interesting is we imitate God in the very same ways. If you're a parent or you've babysat kids, let your two-year-old tell you, Daddy, I want ice cream. No, I said yes. <laughs> I want ice cream now. You will look at that child and be like, man. And you got to stop and remember that this is only a two-year-old talking like this. This is where them phrases come out like this. I brought you in this world. I take you out. You kind of get indignant, like, who are you talking to? <laughs> like, you don't tell me what I'm going to do, right? This is a, you are a child. You do not, no, you're not driving. You're six years old. <laughs> then they start crying and be all upset, and then what? Some, and you have to discipline them sometimes. You have to spank them. Why? Because you need to get in line. Who in the world are you talking to like that? I'm your dad. Don't talk to me like that. I'm your mom. Don't talk to me like that. So how is it that we do that with our children and struggle when God does it with his children? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who in the world are we to tell the God who created everything? Why is you doing it like that? <laughs> and there's much more of a separation between God and us and me and my kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I used to say when my kids was little, Lord, they are to me what I am to you. I get it. A little bit. I get it. And I've had relatively wonderful children. Good kids. But the reality is, you're not going to talk to me outside of the structure that's set up. <laughs> Are we going to talk to God outside of the structure that's in place that he set up? This is an overarching reality. There are seven questions that God asks here. We're going to condense it into five because two of the questions kind of go together, at least for me. I'm going to stack them together to make them five. We're going to look at these five questions 
closely and see what are we really talking about here. So the first question is this, verse 19. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? This is a rational question for people made in God's image to ask. This is a rational question. God has created us in his image, and we care about justice, about fairness. I mean, it's not just Christians either. There are non-Christians who work for Red Cross and Blue Shield, who will become police officers, drug and alcohol counselors, doctors who save lives. I mean, there are people who have a sense, because we're created in God's image, a desire to, to do some good. We're not talking about good that earns salvation, but we're talking about good that's just a part of being made in God's image. It's not just Christians who do good things. A lot of people do good things. It's a rational argument for people who understand some semblance of what it means to be fair. I mean, even your children. My kids, when they were little, if one took something from the other, I'd be like, what happened? That's not fair. How did you know what fair is? It's internalized. You get it. You learn from us. Don't do this, but it's also there. It's internalized. We're, we're made in God's image. It's a rational question. He created us in the same way that he is. Very similar. In fact, Psalm 8, 3 through 5 says this, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a man, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. So you see, the psalm is acknowledging that God made us a little less than himself, a little lower than the angels. We're created in his image. So this is a rational question to ask. Well, then who can resist his will? If you're choosing who goes and who doesn't, then who can resist that? Why do you find fault when people do wrong things? This is the type of question that people should ask. It's a good question. The challenge here and what God is addressing, though, is not the question that's being asked, but the heart behind the question. This question makes two assumptions that are not right. The first assumption is that, that people are sinning and it's God's fault. Why then does he still find fault? Fault at what? People sinning and not believing in Jesus. Why do you find fault? If you, you, I mean, who can resist you? It assumes that God is at fault. The second assumption that it makes it's not right is that salvation should be given to everyone or it's God's fault. So why then does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Resist his will of what? To believe in Jesus. Salvation is on you. So if people don't believe, then it's on you. It makes a faulty assumption. And the question is not raised out of curiosity. It's raised out of complaint. And we'll see that in just a moment. But the reality is the complaint is selective, even for us. I don't hear people saying, man, why does that guy who rapes children get to be punished? Why doesn't he get to go to heaven? I don't hear people making that argument. I don't hear people saying, hey, these people who have committed mass suicides and murders, they need to be with the Lord too. Why aren't they in heaven? No one cares about those folks. It's a complaint that's selective because what we're caring about is the people that we know and love. We don't want the people that we know to experience judgment. And that's a good thing. But remember, Neither did Paul. Neither did Paul. Let's go back a couple of messages real quick to Romans 9, verse 3. Remember when Paul said this? 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Bold statement. I told you I love y'all, but I ain't making that statement for nobody. In this room. <laughs> You'll be in hell like, Dad, what was I thinking? Ah! <laughs> I'm telling you. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. So Paul is struggling with the fact that people that he loves are not going to make it. But that same Paul is demonstrating for us how to process the grief of the loss of people we love and the reality that the eternal God who is love allows for that. Because that same Paul in this context said this in verse 6, for now it is not as though the word of God has failed, by extension God himself, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. You see, in context, in context, these questions that God is asking are about Jews who are struggling with the Gentiles receiving genuine salvation and being called sons of Abraham instead of them. In context, the problem is the Jews believe that we're ethnically we're ethnically, we are by ethnic design connected to Abraham, but you're saying not all of us are sons of Abraham, but there are people who didn't care about Abraham three years ago are now children of Abraham. So in context, in context, these questions are, at, are trying to help them understand that God can save whoever he wants to save. In our context, though, we process those questions in light of people that we know and love that either did not make it or do not appear right now as if they're going to make it. So God responds to that question, who can find fault? Who can resist his will? He responds to it with verse 20. On the contrary... Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Now, you have to remember, see, when we preach, this is what happens when we preach. We take a section of scripture and we teach that. A week goes by, another section, and we teach that. And then a week goes by. Last week, Mike did a different message, and now we're back in this. And so what happens is we forget the logic that's already been established. But when Paul's writing this letter, he's not writing it expecting, okay, y'all going to read this this week, and then these four verses the next week, and then these four verses after. Paul's thinking, you're going to see the whole letter, the point that I'm making. See, we forget the point that's being made broader than just the passage we're looking at. So remember, the, this question comes on the heels of what has already been established in the scripture, but included Romans 9. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that the morality of mercy is not contingent upon human approval or human input. That was just there. We saw that two weeks ago, the morality of mercy. Well, this question, verse 20, adds one more component. So we saw that human input and human approval can evaluate the morality of God, the morality of his mercy. But he adds one more component to this. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? He adds human understanding. 
So it's not human input or human approval or human understanding. We don't have to understand it for it to be true and for God to be God. It doesn't matter if we understand it or not. And some things God said, I believe the scripture is true and all that it affirms. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, God said some things you're not going to understand. The secret things are for, the Lord, for you and your children, but there are things that the Lord has. God never intended for us to understand everything. You know why? Because if you understand everything, then you don't have to have faith for anything. When things are difficult and you trust, it's because you have faith. And faith is what? In, our, in modern vernacular, here's what faith is. I believe it because God said it, even though I don't see it. In the modern vernacular, I believe it because God said it, but I don't see it. That's the reality. Human understanding of God, what God does, does not necessarily affirm what God does. And this is where we find ourselves answering these questions or seeing these questions that God, on behalf of Paul, on behalf of God, is asking. He's not asking us to understand it. He's asking us to believe in the one who created it. And it still becomes a challenge. But again, this isn't rude. He's correcting a rudimentary, a, 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 a thought that's not fully developed. That's a basic understanding is what rudimentary means. He's not being rude. He's correcting a rudimentary understanding about salvation. And not only about salvation, but about who God is. And not only about who God is, but about who we are. He doubles down on this by asking these questions at the end of verse 20. Well, what, it, well, what is form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? For the Jews in this church, in the church in Rome, for the Jews who this letter was originally written to, not us today, but the Jews who this letter was written to, every letter in the Bible, every, every book it was all written to someone specifically or people specifically that transcend our time. The people that the Jews that this was originally written to would have known that this language is eerily familiar. Jeremiah 18 says this. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. There I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house. And there he was working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar, and it seemed right for him to do so, to do. The word of the Lord came to me, house of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. 
However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I plan to do to do to it. So here is familiar language. Isaiah 29, 16 says this. For you have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? They would be familiar with Isaiah 45, verse 9, where he says this. Woe to the one who argues with his maker. One clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Or does your work say he has no hands? He's out there making it with your elbows. <laughs> Verses like Romans 9, 20 to 21, show us that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is the same logic that he's used. This isn't new logic. It's the same analogy because from God, I see you the same way. The analogy of potter clay is to help us because in their day and age, people made a lot of pottery. So that was a popular thing. You could walk by in a market and see wonderful uh, pieces of pottery made. You could watch people sitting there molding and, and shaping it and turning a big clump into a small vase or turning that same clump into a tall vase or to some statue. This was normal for them. So he's using language that they can understand it. The way you see a potter forming it and he determines what that lump of clay is going to be, I am the great potter who determines what's going to happen in the way I shape and form people. This is what he's saying. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But by default, we are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow but not in the same way God is. We're the same in that they, they couldn't question God and neither can we. We're even further away from the kind of mindset that they had that would understand these things because our culture is vastly different than this. Theologically, this is addressing what can often be called the creator-creature distinction. Well, God is the creator. He creates. In his sovereignty, he creates all life, all, everything. In his providence, he works through the situations, the moments, the space-time continuum that he creates. He works through that so that his will is accomplished. And that extends to salvation. God creates, and the creature, we creature. We act in the way that God has created us. You ever watch uh, like a, um, America's Funniest Home Videos or watch something on TikTok? And it's amazing when you see like a dog sound like it's talking. You ever see one of those videos where like, my dog says no. And they be like, come here, boy. And he's like, no. And it has millions of views, you know? You know why? Because a dog wasn't created to talk. 
So it's, it seems like, whoa, what's happening here? You're going to click on a video because in your mind, that's not what dogs do. That's not what happens. They're not created to do this. Creatures act in the way that God created them. Human beings are creatures that act in the way that God has created them. And he never made us like him to know all the things that he knows. He made us like him to accomplish a purpose on the earth. And by faith, we trust him because he knows all of this. He knows why I'm going through this situation right now. And it doesn't require my input, approval or understanding, but it does require my trust. It requires my faith, and that's what he rewards. In verse 19, God asked the question. He, he, he's responding to when we say or when people say, well, why then does he Sylvain fault? Who can resist his will? And then he turns to questions like Job on us. Essentially saying, look, I'm the great potter. Am I not allowed to make pottery that serves a different purpose? But we can still be offended at that. Let's just be honest. This passage doesn't make you be like, oh, that's it for me. (laughs) Maybe for some of you. But that would be too easy. But we don't have to choose between accepting that God allows people to experience his wrath and that he allows people to experience his grace and that we experience the loss and the, of people that we know and love. We don't have to choose between them. We can accept them both. That's what Paul did. Paul said, man, I wish I could change places with these folks. But then he said, but it's not God's not at fault for this happening. We don't have to choose between. See, in our, in our culture, everything is it's, it's monolithic. It's you're red or you're blue. You're this or you're that. It's just, you have these choices and this choice. It has to be this. And this is like sometimes it's just, man, I'm both and. I don't have to choose between God being fully, Jesus being fully man and fully God. I choose both. I don't have to choose between, okay, so I shouldn't grieve the fact that people are going to experience his judgment versus God's sovereign. I can choose both. I have friends that I know did not make it. There are people that in my wildest dreams, I can think that maybe they had a moment like the thief on the cross. But I was with this dude yesterday and he got murdered the next day. I don't think he asked the Lord for forgiveness. I wasn't dead, but I doubt right before he got shot. Jesus. I know people that did not make it. And I have to accept that that God is still sovereign. He's still good. We can do both. But for the purposes of our discussion, let's change the questions and come from a different perspective to help us grow in our rationale. Let's change the questions and ask a couple that help us grow, may help us grow. Do you not think that the rats that run into your home, that you hate, that you will set traps for and call an exterminator to kill immediately when you see them. Do you not think that they have families? (laughs) Do you not think that that rat that you saw run across is trying to find food to feed its babies? But the minute you see it, you hate it and want it killed. This is not funny. 
This is reality. Do you not think that that thing, that that creature that you hate does not have a family? In our backyard one night, this big raccoon walked out from underneath our shed. I had just finished grilling, so I was like, see, that's, that's what happens when I grill. They come out. <laughs> but the reality was it just walked out. And then three little raccoons came out with it. And then we were like, hey, guys, look, 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 look at the raccoon family. And you know, everything is cute when it's small, right? right? It's like, oh, look at how cute they are. And then so we knocked on the window. And the mother, ra- the mother raccoon stopped and looked at us like this, watching closely. Why? Because it has three babies around it that it wants to defend. Do you not think the rodents that you hate, that you just laughed at, have a family as well? that are trying to provide for them. Do you not think that the loss of that particular rat does not affect the rest of the family? What about the bees and the cicadas that you step on and the, the gnats and the flies that you swap? Those are things that God created. Did you create them? Did you create those things? But yet, because you don't value their existence, you kill them instantly. Why? Because they annoy you. We make decisions all the time on destroying life because we don't see its purpose. And yet we judge God for doing the same thing. You may think, oh, well, a rat's not made in God's image. But does God not care about animals? Did God not say to Job? Did he not say to Jonah in Jonah 4, verses 10 to 11? This is God's word. Did God not say this? And the Lord said, you care about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in the night and perished in the night. So may I not care about the city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals? Just because we think it's not a big deal to kill that, do we really know that God likes that? Can you prove from Scripture that God likes that you killed, that we kill these things because they inconvenience us? You see, we make these decisions all the time. And we're so far away from who God is. We're much closer to that rat than God is to us. The distance and the holiness, because a rat is a creature. It's not made in God's image, but it's a creature, and God cares about creatures. Us at the top, and it goes down. God made these animals before he created us. And then he said, it's good. So the very things that we are like, kill that. I'm not talking about go kill and eat. I'm just talking about this thing just ran through my kitchen called Terminix. (laughs) Don't call Terminix. Talk to LaShawn first. Don't call Terminix. If you're watching the year from Terminus, we respect you. We appreciate you. It's just your place of employment sometimes. Ah, talk to LaShawn. We get to end life because we don't value its existence. But the one who created life itself doesn't get to have the same option. It's just the reality of what God's word is saying. Creator, creature. We will judge God for the same thing that we'll do in a heartbeat. 
Because to us, that's nothing. It means nothing. I'm not saying God feels the same way about people, but he created life itself, and he determines to what degree people will experience it. And the proof is this. This is where we get deeper into sort of the ultimatum of mercy. We've seen the morality, the mystery. Now we get into the ultimatum of mercy. In verse 22, listen to what God says. And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? So what if God wanting to display his wrath and, and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction. Here's what he's trying to say. Paul is asking this as if it's a what-if question, but it's not, it's not a what-if like it's hypothetical. It's an actual reality. God, in order to display his wrath, instead of destroying everyone, which he could do, he allows people to live, to sin against him, trample the Son of God underfoot that Hebrews talks about, and he still blesses them in this life. So there are people who don't love God, who never will, and he still lets them have good lives. Let's just be honest. Some of them live better than us in this life. Amen. We call them, what, the beautiful people? The people that got all the money. I'll never forget. I'm sure I've said this before. I'll never forget this moment. I was a new believer. This was around. I was early in my faith. And I was about it's around 99. And I used to drive for Airborne Express. It was like a gangster FedEx. <laughs> yeah, we was, it was all, we was all gangsters in that whole thing. All of us. There wasn't nobody in there that wasn't ready to fight. And so I was driving and I used to listen to WAVA all day. And so there was this talk show on by a woman named Janet Parshall. And she had a talk show on from three to five. And I would listen to it because I would be sort of my afternoon route. And usually when her show was over, I was wrapping up my route and heading back to the warehouse. And I remember she was talking about the owners, the creator of E-Trade at the time. And they, she was describing who this woman was and just the debauchery in her life that she celebrates. And I remembered thinking this. And again, this isn't authoritative, but this is, I remember thinking this. I just said this to God out loud, expecting nothing in return. I was thinking about, all, at that time, this was like 99, so there was tons of, I mean, billions of dollars or something like that that E-Trade was responsible for. And I just said, Lord, why do you always allow the people who don't love you to get all the money in this world? Like, imagine if that was a believer and all the good they could do for the church. I was just thinking out loud. And I was like, Lord, why do you always let the people who don't care about you get the money? And I heard this quiet voice say, because that is their reward. And I know it was the Lord because there are only a few times in my life I've heard it very clearly. And I was too new to understand, and that made sense to me, said, that is their reward. And I was like, wow. And then all of a sudden, a lot of things connected for me. No wonder believers suffer and struggle and experience loss and pain because this is not our reward. This is not it. The way this looks and the way we, this is not it. 
This is what Paul said. And I didn't even know about Romans 8.18 then, but now I know. I consider that no suffering can be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. You see, God has said, listen, I can, that money means nothing. They can have the world as it says. This is their reward. God's letting people experience. Have you ever watched Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? What's that dude's name? Robin Leach? Yeah. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And you watch this thing, and you see these people, or you see MTV Cribs, and you're like, man, that house is crazy. But them people, most of those people don't know Jesus. But John 14, he said, in my father's house, there were many rooms, which means the house that you and I get is going to be better than the one we see on MTV Cribs because God made that one. And he made it according to who you are and the faith that he's given you and how you live that out. This is their reward. So Paul is basically on behalf of God saying, look, if God wants to display his wrath, he's allowing people to sin against him and not destroy them, letting people have good lives, sometimes materialistically better than all of us. We fight the envy of people who seem like they have everything. We know money can't buy you love, but I'd rather be rich trying to figure that out than broke. <laughs> you know, we're looking for a house, and every house we like, man, it seems like people just walk up and put cash off or down. It's like, man, who's walking around with $500,000 in cash just buying houses up? And why do you always choose the one we like? <laughs> Like, why don't you like that Cape Cod over there that we don't like? Why do you like this house? Wishing I was them. No, this is the reward. God is letting people who deserve his wrath experience his grace right now. But at some point, they are going to atone for their sins. But God, did, does God have to do that? Does he have to let them experience that? And if so, on what basis? God is patiently allowing people to enjoy life, even though they don't believe in him. God kept the Roman soldiers alive that were crucifying him. I mean, if Jesus would have decided, oh, you stop breathing. That would have been it. So while he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he's sustaining their life so that they can do it. So we have to remember, when we think about all these things, think about this, that Jesus kept alive, the very Romans, he kept alive all these people, the, the, the men who, who ripped his back open with, with a whip, the Roman soldiers who did that. He kept alive Pilate and allowed him to be in a position so that he could sentence Jesus to the cross. He kept these people alive. He allows people, but his wrath will be on display at some point for many of them. Even though he wants to display his wrath and make his power known, that's a functioning aspect of his character. He shows restraint. And some people, because of the grace that he gives them, will be the means of which they reject. What does the Bible say? That it's better for a person to not inherit the riches of the world and forfeit their soul. (laughs) 
This is not easy. And we don't have to understand it. I'm not even sure if we have to like it. But we do have to acknowledge that it's true. God never said whoever likes what I do. Maybe there's a verse or something there. (laughs) It's not about is this easy to take. It's just it requires faith to believe and accept. I, I, with integrity, I, I will not stand before God and say, man, I liked all the stuff you allowed to happen in my life. I mean, God knows this. He said this in Hebrews 12. He said, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained up under it. God knows that we don't like it. He never said, hey, like this or else. He said, now persevere. It's for your good. I'm conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, take up your cross, he didn't mean one that you put on your neck. He meant one that's a lot heavier to carry. And I'm grateful to be in the presence of people who I know some of the crosses that you've carried. I've had the privilege to watch you or at times be Simon of Cyrene and help you. And it's not easy. What God does is not easy. And he never intended it to be. It was intended to require faith. So he says, listen, I am restraining myself. But you know why he gives an answer why he's doing that in verse 24. Here's why he's doing that. Restraining the wrath that people immediately deserve. Wrath is immediately deserved, and he's restraining himself for verse 24, 23. And what if he did this, restraining the wrath, to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? See, everyone deserves wrath, but some people he's given mercy to. So because he's merciful in salvation for these folks, for those... He's merciful in some salvation and in this life towards a lot of people. He's merciful in their circumstances. So that it highlights his mercy towards their wrath is to highlight the mercy towards those who experience his grace by believing in his son, whom he's chosen to do so. In context... God is saying that if he chooses to give non-Jewish people, which are called the Gentiles, if he chooses to grant them mercy and give them grace, and if he chooses to not let all Jews who are ethnically, ethnically related to Abraham, if he chooses to give them salvation, that's his decision. In context, in our context, Though it may be difficult, there may be some that we know and love that may not make it. And we are allowed to grieve and struggle with that. But we're not allowed to accuse God for that. Because we're just human beings. 
analogically speaking, we are the rats. We are the cicadas, the spider crickets. I hate spider crickets. I've thrown many heavy theology books at spider crickets. And you got to be smooth because they're hip. You think they're just walking around, but they're watching you. So I just quickly, I just grab a heavy book. I see that bad boy right there. I think, yeah, you think you're playing. You in my house. I grab the book. Slowly act like I'm reading that joint. <laughs> I lied to you not. Because they're crafty. That's how I kill them. Look like I'm reading. I, I glance over to make sure he's still there. Say, so you a bold dude, huh? And I throw my book up in the air. Boom! <laughs> Got him. Then I clean it up. That's not what God is doing. Right. And let me tell you why. Because that rat, that cricket has not sinned against us. There's no moral wrong for a rat being a rat looking for food and running through our houses to find it. That rat has no moral, moral faculty in which it sinned against me that it deserves to be killed for it. But human beings have a moral faculty. We have a morality that said we rebel against God and God and his holiness has every right to say some are going to experience the punishment for that. And I don't expect you to understand it. I'm not asking for your input or approval, but I am asking for your faith. For his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you, at some point, gave me and Mike the inkling and the leadership team to go through Romans and, and to know that we would hit these types of moments. Lord, when I'm preaching, it's, it's hard to sometimes capture the essence of what is true. I don't want to say things too hard and, and, and make it sound like you're being dismissive of people's struggles. And I don't want to say things too, too soft as if you care so much about people's struggles that you're not who you are. I don't always know the balance, especially in passages like these. But, Father, you do. So I pray that those who may struggle with this, I'm sure that I failed in many ways in communicating accurately the way the tenderness or whatever tone in which would, would best glorify you. Try to preach as if I, the way I see you saying it. But I'm fallible, Lord. You, I'm a human being. I am analogically the rat. I don't. So, Father, I pray that you would comfort those who need comfort as a result of this hard truth. But you would also confirm in all of us who need the confirmation that this is true. Not because I said it. But because we read it. Thank you for this moment, Lord. sometimes this kind of truth, the distance between us and you, we need that. We need that reminder sometimes. Just like our children need to be spanked sometimes for their tones with us, sometimes we need to be theologically spanked for our presumptions on you. Where they're present, where they're not, praise you. Where they are, Lord, please continue to be patient with us as we work through the challenges of the ultimatum of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amen. We um, thank you for the message, Pastor Kurt. We do have a, a few questions. Um, and I'll just remind those who are here who would like to take communion that the communion elements are back here on this table. Can uh, somebody, hey, Lou, can you give me one of those? Just put it back there. Um, so uh, the first question we have is, um, came pretty early uh -huh. in this, uh, it says in the story of Job's affliction. Thank you. Um, you, you mentioned that the Lord restored all that he had taken away. Mm -hmm. And so the person who asks wants to know, are we to understand that God did the taking away, though Satan decided the affliction? So I guess it's, are we to, uh, I'm sorry. I, I think I understand what you're asking. Okay. Right. Yeah, I think I understand what you're asking. So, say, so we used to say this in, in an old, the first church I've ever, I got saved in. It's Pentecostal church, small church. It's like a big, it was like a family church with, with more people because I wasn't one of the members. And they used to say this all the time. The devil is still God's devil. And what that means is that if you look at the, the, the story of Job, is that the devil needed permission. It wasn't like he could do that because when God put limitations on him, Satan had to submit to that. Right. So when he said you can in the first in chapter one, you can do all this stuff. Just don't touch a hair on his head. He couldn't touch him. Chapter two. What does Satan say? Skin for skin. God said, all right, you can do whatever you want, but don't kill him. Right. So God determined, just like in, in, in what he said in Job later on, who determines the, the, where the sky comes and this comes? And who determines how far the ocean comes and that comes? Well, who determines what Satan is allowed to do and not allowed to do? God so determines that. Satan doesn't have, he can't just do whatever he wants. Now, how that dynamic works, the Bible doesn't describe for us. What it does describe is that God gave Satan permission to do certain things, which means ultimately, ultimately, God allowed this to happen. So when I made that statement, I made it in its grandest sense. Obviously, God said to Satan, you incited me to destroy him. We could say, man, y'all just made a bet. But I'm not going to say that to God, though. But so I do think it's, it's just I, I think in the grand scheme, it's like God allows for things to happen in that way. All right. Thank you. Um, so this question is from someone who, who had, you know, they've been through a really tough season themselves, and by God's grace, um, their relationship with the Lord is is better now. But they're aware that um, people struggle with the same things that they did in terms of um, thinking that they lost everything that they that they have, and they want to know like how what's a good way to encourage people to work through um, the fact that they've lost everything um, and that, you know, God does things for a reason, even though it's out of our control. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make the assumption that the person that they're talking about is a Christian, because there are different ways I think you would talk to someone who's not a Christian. I mean, you could use the same language, but the Bible is clear 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. 
And if the Bible is clear that the cross is um, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, and they might not understand, non-Christians might not take well to sort of biblical phraseology to describe them. So I'm going to assume the person is a Christian, and I would, I would say a couple things. The first is, there's two things that we have to think about. When people lose everything, what we're talking about typically is sort of like Job. We're thinking materialistically, because that person's still alive, obviously, and as far as we know, they haven't lost their salvation the way that they know of. So they're talking about how do I deal with the material loss? And that means, by material, I just don't mean iPads and cars. I'm talking about relationships, different things. How do I deal with the loss materially is one. That's one kind of, so I'm kind of paraphrasing, rephrasing what they're asking. You know, there's, there's again, there's no easy way to deal with this. God never, if anyone ever told you it was easy, they were lying or not genuinely converted. So there's no easy way to go about this. But I think we have to remind ourselves, there's a reason why in the Gospels, Jesus said these words, set your mind on things above, right? Where your treasure is, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Set your mind on places where the moth cannot destroy and rust cannot. Jesus said this for a reason because he knew that we're going to experience material loss in this life. And if we put our hope in a particular circumstance, maybe it's marriage or family or children or promotion or a new home or whatever it is, once our circumstances, are, our hope is placed in something we want God to do, and if it doesn't happen, then it reveals that our faith is really about what God is capable of and not who God is. And so Jesus said, set your mind on things above. And we really have to remind ourselves, like I said earlier, this is not our home. Now, by this, I mean the way it currently is. The, the revelation's clear. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So earth is our home. But the way that it looks now and what we're experiencing now with sin in it and all this, mm-mm. It's not our home. Our experience of earth is not the way we're going to experience it when it's all said and done. And so we have to remind ourselves that God has promised. So John 14, in my father's house, there are many rooms, right? We have to look at Romans 8, 18 again. I consider that we have to train ourselves to believe in the things that God says. Do stuff like read Revelation 21 and 22. Read that and, and, and try to visualize this, this city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of God and people. And, and he describes what it is. And in and, and, and Revelation 21, 7, where he says he's going to wipe every tear from the eye of believers. There are people in this room, some people with, with tears. And God promises he's going to wipe it, sister. He's going to wipe every tear. From every eye. We have to remind ourselves of what's coming and not look at what's happened. And we tend to focus on what's happened because it's easier if we see it. It's hard for me to visualize life being better than this unless, I, unless it's materialistically. We just don't have it. 
But you have to go to 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about going to a third heaven and seeing things that no human being can utter. Look at the descriptions in, in the scriptures. It's not just for here. Jesus describes the great wedding feast. We get to see, we, 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 he, he's given us sort of a, a window into what's coming, and we have to train ourselves to think that way. Otherwise, we'll be in despair. The Bible says this, and, and, and Pastor Mike quotes this all the time, often. We do not grieve as the world grieves. We don't grieve as they grieve. We have to, we have to be careful that we're not grieving as the world grieves. There are people that are believers that die, and I cry. And every once in a while, I still cry. But I'm not grieving the way people, because I know I'm going to see them again. Amen. We're going to be together again, and it's going to be better than what it was here. That doesn't mean we don't cry, but I'm not crying the way the world cries. Because they're never going to see those people again, unless they're in Christ. So we have to train ourselves to do that. And that takes time. It takes effort, but it, it takes, again, there's a phrase in the Bible, it's called renew your mind, right? Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take your thoughts captive. These are all things that God is saying we have to do to remind ourselves of what's coming. And the way we encourage other people, you know, is relatively trying to be faithful to do it ourselves. You know, as a pastor, you can ask anybody in here that's counseled me, that sat down with me. I don't sit around and just, when people are sharing their struggles, I don't sit around and just flip open a verse and be like, have you read this? Okay. Go back. Uh, uh, you look at the, have you read this one? Have you read this? You know what I do? I say, here's how I've failed in this and what the Lord showed me. Ask anyone in here who's done premarital with me. I designed the premarital process of all the ways that I failed as a husband. Don't do this. I didn't know about this when I was met. Don't do this. Ask anyone who's done premarital with me. It's all don't do this. It's not, uh, have you read this passage on marriage? Have you done this? <laughs> we, 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 we grieve with people by sharing. This is 2 Corinthians 1, really, right? By our grief, we comfort other people in their grief. And sometimes, I said this a while ago, your suffering doesn't belong to you. You know why? Because God allows us to suffer so we can use that to help other people. Amen. There are things I've gone through that now I can help you. I can cry with you because I've suffered. That's 2 Corinthians 1. So that, we have to do that. We have to, we have to be like that with people. So I'm sorry, long answer. It's just, that's been on my mind a lot anyway. One of them want to teach that next week, Mike, if we, if we approve. <laughs> um, this person... Um wants to, um, they say more than this, but uh, time um, for that person. That was for that person, time. All right, so um, this person wants to know how do they explain this to non-Christians, especially Ooh. when they have no concept of God's sovereignty and say things like, I, do, I don't believe in a God who will exclude anyone from heaven. So let me tell you why. I'm smiling for two reasons. One, because I like these types of questions. And two, because I've asked Carl to do a series that have, that will, that's going to talk about a lot of these deep problems, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. I've asked Carl to, to because he's just, he's brilliant. I mean, he does this stuff for a living. He's brilliant at this. 
I've asked them to put together something for our church, a context in which all these kinds of questions will be asked. So let me first say, thank you, brother. I'm thanking you in advance. I could do this, sure, but why not use someone who will do it better? So I've asked Carl to do that. And so these kinds of questions will be answered in, in a more personal level, right? Now, having said that, so there's a couple of challenges here. Let me tell you the first challenge is what I quoted a few minutes ago, 1 Corinthians 2, right? 1 Corinthians 2, 4, 11 through 14, talks about who knows the spirit of God except the spirit within him. And then it goes to man doesn't understand spiritual things because they don't have the spirit, right? So that's a challenge on one level. So you have to understand that what you're wanting to do, you may not be able to accomplish in the way that you want it to do. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Okay, so neither he who plants nor waters is anything but God causes the growth. So now you have to think of yourself as a farmer who's planting or watering a seed that may have been planted. But God's going to cause the growth. Now the reason why I'm saying this is because normally when we ask these types of questions, we, we have an outcome in mind which a person believes what we're saying, and we can get discouraged when they don't. But it could just be you're just sowing the seed or watering a seed, but at some point God may cause it to grow. All right, so that's, we have to know that realistically. All right, now, methodologically, how do we do this? I like to, I like to use what Paul did in the Areopagus, in, first, in, in, in Acts, right? At, if you really study what Paul does in Acts 17, it's really brilliant. And he can appeal to things and concepts in a way that the people he's talking to understand. I don't think it's, I think for Christians, sometimes we get, what do they call it, Christianese? Right, where you just get so stuck in explaining things that you don't know how to say things apart from you. Sometimes you just have to learn, how do I think of this in, in terms that a person would understand? So if a person says something like this, I can't trust a God who would allow people to suffer, right? Okay, that person has a standard of morality that doesn't call for someone to suffer for whatever reason. So then I would ask something like this. So how, how do you process like criminals who commit crimes? Like, do you feel like they should experience like, if someone rapes my kid and kills them, do you think they should go to prison? And I'm not saying you have to ask that question. I'm just trying to help you understand. You have to understand the logic of what's being said. Like, everyone agrees with justice. Everyone agrees with the level, but we're selective in it because, it, so if it's someone that you care about, oh, you want justice. You might not agree with the death penalty until they kill your mom. You see what I'm saying? So, again, what I, what I try to do is think you know, philosophically, okay, who is this person? How do they think? What does that mean? And so I want to ask questions. So do you, so you think everyone deserves to, to go to heaven? Like, what's the standard that you think should allow someone to go to heaven? Well, they think it should be good people. Okay, so, so how good is good enough? Like, what's the standard of good, do you think? I want to help them understand that you actually do agree with this. You just don't like it that God is doing it. Because we all have a standard of morality. So again, I, Carl will answer this stuff more because of time and we have to do communion. There's a lot more I would say, but I want to use the philosophical presentation, which is what Paul did in Acts 17. He was like, look, you are religious people. I see that. You know, you have, let, me, let me tell you about this unknown God that you have an altar here for. And he starts walking in through. He uses their philosophers. 
You know, he, he, he does this, look at Acts 17 and then try to think, okay, here's a methodology for describing the gospel. Because that was the one clear time that the people were unbelievers. Then you get Acts 26, Paul in front of Felix, and he shares his testimony. So here's another thing that I do methodologically. I'll say stuff like this. When someone says, I can't trust a God, I'll be like this. You know what? I used to think just like that. I used to think that way, too. Like, it took me, it, I, I struggled with that as well. And then I explained how I went from, I don't like this, to, okay, I accept this as a reality. Sometimes your personal touch is helpful. But again, because I don't know all the dynamics. It might be a relative who knows this stuff about you. So, but I think these are questions that we can talk about often. But I think Carl will probably be able to address a lot of those types of things, both theologically and, and then practically. So we'll let you guys know when that's, when that's coming up. All right. Um, this will be the last one. Um, but I will say I recognize that a few people whose questions I have not shared are here. So they can just ask me so, afterwards. Right. So no. you can just ask. Uh, I'm not going time. anywhere because there are people looking at the house we're living in now. I can't even go there. <laughs> so I'm not going nowhere for a little bit. So you can just ask me afterwards. But uh, this one, God bless you. This one did come in that says, uh, do you say that God necessarily makes people into vessels of destruction as Romans 9.22, where it's station 9.22, or that God leaves them to their devices confirming in them they've chosen the evil? So does God make them that way or does he leave them to be who they already are? Exactly. So I'd say, how do you read Romans 9? Like, how do you interpret what he says when he says, can the potter make not make for some honorable use versus dishonorable use? Like that, that language. So, the, so the, here's the challenge. I would say yes to both of your questions. I think the Bible describes both of those things, which is why the challenge of this is tough, because it's like, that's the question. Well, then... Why do you find fault with people? Because who can resist your will? You're God. If you decree that people, are, if you declare that they're not going to make it, they're not going to make it regardless. So why are you punishing people if you're not? That's kind of the whole argumentation, right? I think the Bible teaches that God creates people, some for objects of wrath and some for mercy. And the point is not whether that's good or bad. The point is God determines that reality on his own. And we have to accept that, like Paul did, for as reality. But then the Bible also teaches that mankind does rebel on their own. So there's this, there's this word picture that I used to hear all the time. And here's the word picture that I used to hear. That once Adam and Eve bit the fruit, all humanity, because they represented humanity, was cursed, right? That's why in Romans 5, and Adam all die. So there's this word picture that everyone is running towards hell and that God is pulling people back, taking people who are going that way that that's kind of the word picture that I used to hear all the time. I haven't thought about it deeply enough to think if I still believe that it's like that, but at least that's the word picture that used to come to my mind is that way. So I think the Bible does teach that God creates situations. Like when we get to, uh, uh, like Pharaoh, I've hardened your heart to demonstrate, demonstrate my purpose. So God is taking credit for his heart being hardened. At the same time, though, there's some sense in which all right, did God harden his heart the whole time? Was it just his? That stuff, the Bible doesn't really tell us. Now, we could speculate, but it wouldn't be coming from Scripture. It'd be coming from sort of logic and philosophy based on what we see the Bible say about all these things. So I think the Bible actually describes both of those realities. 
as difficult as they may be. I think the Bible describes both. That's it. All right. For those of you that still have questions, I'll be here for, for, some, for a little longer. So feel free to come and talk to me. I'll be sitting in the back. And now let's prepare our hearts to receive communion.